So I want to encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, and it's going to be verses 1 through 17. Page uh, 927. Last week, uh, why don't you put this, there's a quote in there by Jim Elliott, the first slide. Last week, uh, we, we talked about this, this prayer of Jim Elliott, and it was, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost or a single road. Make me a fork. That men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. We know that the gospel brings people to a crisis point. Christians are called to upset the world for Christ. And in that process of upsetting the world for Christ and having people make decisions, being a fork in the road, it is often not just this joyful, exuberant moment of, oh, every, every step along the way is just joyful and pain-free. It's just this primrose path of joy and exuberance. Often we, we're discovering, even through this book of Acts, we're seeing that there is pain along the way. And this morning we are going to be looking at the faithfulness of our Lord. As we look at Acts 18, 1 through 17, um, we are going to be able to see this thread of God's faithfulness to his people, our faithful Lord. And this morning, whatever it is that you are going through or whatever it is that you are going to be going through, I hope that we are able to see through this gospel lesson God's faithfulness his continued covenantal faithfulness to his people so let's read together after this and this was Paul being last week he was in Athens after this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, and he went to see them, and because he was at the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And while Silas and Timothy, when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ, the Christ, was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am, an, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus, Justus, a worshiper of God. His, his house was next to the synagogue. Crispus the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said, said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. 
And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious, vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself, yourselves. I refuse to be a judge on these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Now just even a, a quick cursory reading. That reading probably took what, maybe two minutes, three minutes? I, I, I'm hoping just that by pure reading, you can see God's faithfulness. The reality is that faithfulness in our day and age is really a rare commodity. It's a rare commodity. All of us have had experiencing, experiences of trusting in someone. And what has happened? They have let us down time and time and time and time again. And because of that, one of the most encouraging promises in the Bible is that God is faithful. God is faithful. People may let you down. And I, I'm going to promise you right now, they will. And I'm going to promise you right now, I will. But ultimately, the promise that we need to grasp a hold of and tie on to is that God is faithful. He's the only one who is truly faithful. And of course, there, there are times where it seems as if God has let us down. But the reality is, is that we need to learn to deal with those times of disappoint, disappointment with God. And the problem is always, I want to hear you, you to hear this, the problem is always that it is us at fault. It is always on our end, never on his end. Never does God fail us. Never. But that's a subject for a whole nother message. Today I want to focus on God's faithfulness to us, especially in times of difficulty. And certainly God has, has been faithful to his body down through the years. So I want us, this is going to be our theme, and I you, you can just leave that theme for the, the entire morning. Just leave it up there. This is our theme. Because God is faithful to us, because it's a fact, especially in times of difficulty, we should respond with faithful service to him. Because God is faithful, especially in times of difficulty, we respond in a certain way. God's faithfulness, hear this, God's faithfulness does not exempt us from trials. His redeeming you and saving you does not take you out of this world and exempt you from all kinds of trials and pains and circumstances that cause disappointment and mistrust. God is always faithful. But we live as sojourners, as travelers through this world in the midst of other sinful people and we are going to experience trials but we need to know that he sustains us through them. Here's the first thing. God's servants all 
go through difficult times. I'm willing to bet that if I would poll each one of you, you would be able to say, man, I don't have enough fingers, I don't have enough toes to list all the ways that I have experienced trials and difficult times. And immediately, some of you are going, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've had this time in in my my Christian walk. I've had this time in my marriage. I've had this time growing up with my parents in my community. I've had this time in this trial in high school, in grade school. I've had this time in this season in the church. I've had this time. We we all go through difficult times. Sometimes we, we... even when we look at uh, biblical heroes, we, we put them way too high up on a pedestal, don't we? We look at David and say, man, I want to be like David, or man, I want to be like Paul. We put them on this pedestal way too high. We, we wrongly imagine that they must not have struggled with the things that we struggle with, right? I mean, after all, they're in the Bible. If I had to pick words to describe the apostle Paul, I would say bold, fearless, courageous, determined, resolute. I would not think of words like fearful, discouraged, distressed, or weak. And yet that's how Paul describes how he felt during his his early days in Corinth. He uses the word distressed. He uses the word weakness. He uses the word fear. He uses the words with much trembling. Paul was a man that was just like you and me. And even though he was a giant in the faith, Paul struggled with the exact same emotions and struggles that we struggle with. Why was Paul weak and fearful when he was in Corinth? Well, I want you to, let's trace back some of the events that was leading up to even his visit here. And this is something that you can also do. Thinking of your life. Your life is not, you know, you hit a point of fearful distress, discouraged, pained. And it's often not just one event, but it is a multitude of events leading up to and climaxing at one thing. If you remember, he was in Asia Minor, and he he wanted to go into the province of Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbid him from going in there. And then he sought to go into Bithynia, but again, the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit him to go in there. And then in the midst of some puzzling hindrances, he got this vision from a Macedonian man who who was calling him to come, come to us. But even with that, things did not go smoothly. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were falsely accused. They were unjustly beaten. They were thrown into jail and then thrown into stocks. You remember that? And after that, they went on to Thessalonica, not for a vacation, but for some more unjust things. And after a short time there, the Jews were in an uproar and they fled to Berea. After that, they went to Athens and he went on with, experienced more ridicule and he was had minimal response to the gospel even there, which must have been extremely difficult. God, what are you doing? You've called me to this. You called me to this. More opposition. And so he left there and he traveled alone. Alone. By foot. Some 50 miles to Corinth. Now, you need to understand a little something about Corinth as we we go into this next section. There are probably some 200,000 residents in this, this town called Corinth. 
It housed the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, which had almost a thousand temple prostitutes that plied their trade under the banner of religion. A thousand. There were so many male prostitutes there and pagan shrines that the city became so notorious for immorality that in the 5th century before Christ, there was a Greek coin that had on it to Corinthianize, which meant to commit sexual immorality. It was on their, it was on their, their coins, their currency. So imagine Paul is leaving Athens where he is... The gospel was minimized, he was ridiculed, he went through a tremendous amount of pain, and then he's going to take a 50-mile trip by foot alone to Corinth, to the city of Corinth, the city of sexual immorality. And along the way there, Paul ran out of money. He ran out of money, and so being trained as a tent maker... He found a Jewish tent maker, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, and he stayed there and he began to work. So he ran also into financial troubles. This is the first time in his missionary journeys that he had to work the trade himself. We don't know whether Aquila or Trilla, Aquila became Christians during this day or whether it was in Rome or whether it was Paul who led them to Christ. But somewhere in this process, Paul had to work and work his tail off. And then on top of that, every Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and tried to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. But it was clear that was, there was still opposition. Still more opposition. There's a point where I would just say uncle, right? And I'm sure 99.9 .9 of you, if you would just be honest, it'd be true of you. I'm done. I am done. I have been faithful to you, God. And you know what? This is all that I get. This is it. I keep pushing on and I desire to be faithful. We too would be much like Paul. Losing faith. Tired and distressed. He is on top of that. He was anxious about the well-being of new believers in Thessalonica. Physically, Paul may not have even fully recovered from his beating that he received in Philippi. So he had physical ailments. So the spiritual concerns and the discouragement of his ministry and the constant opposition, the loneliness, the pain and the weariness and the lack of funds were all weighing down on Paul. We can identify with this. We believe that the word of God is faithful, it's true, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, not just for a time, but for the church it's useful for us. We need to understand that this is true for us. Paul is not this superhero up on a pedestal. Paul is a man, a human being like, like Dina, like Paul, like Christian, like Josh, like his mother, Pat. He is, he is like us. There was a ray of light that broke in. Finally, Silas and Timothy arrived. 
Thanks be to God. They brought good news about the strength of the church in Macedonia. They also brought a generous gift from the church in Philippi. Good news. And what did it do? It enabled Paul once again to devote himself completely to the word of God. A ray of light broke in. But no sooner than he began to do his work again, the Jews fiercely opposed him. And Paul, I don't know if it was a moment of just absolute, he had come to the end of his, his ability to cope or what was the deal. He finally just took the dramatic action. And we can see it in Ezekiel and other places where the prophet, God's person, just shakes out his clothes and pronounces, your blood be on your own heads. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. I'm now going to the Gentiles. I have proclaimed the gospel to you. I have reasoned with you. I've been diligent with you. Dust flies. May your blood be on your own head. The Lord opened an opportunity, though, for Paul to continue ministering next door to the synagogue. Isn't that always ironic? Sometimes you so inwardly focused and hoping here that what happens, it's, it's right next door. He opened the door to the home of Titius, Justice, a new Gentile believer. Paul, no doubt, he was encouraged by the conversion of even Crispus and his entire household, who was a leader in the synagogue, and many other Corinthians believed and were baptized as well. So, but there was also this nagging fear inside of Paul that was just churning he could clearly see a pattern. He preached to the Jews and saw the same initial response. The Jews didn't respond and they grew jealous and stirred up opposition and then Paul has to flee for his life. And now as he had some initial response from the synagogue leader and some others in town, Paul may have been on the verge of leaving Corinth before him forced out again. He was afraid. He was discouraged. And if none other than the Apostle Paul felt that way, then you can be assured that all of God's servants go through the same experiences in life. So hear that. First and foremost, all of God's people go through trials. You are not exempt because you have been bought with a price. Second thing, though, we need to remember, not only what are, are we all going to go through trials and circumstances and painful and discouragement, discouraging times, the second thing we need to remember is this, that God is faithful towards his servants. God is faithful. And there are at least five ways that we can see God's faithfulness shown towards Paul at this time. And that he is always faithful towards even us. First, God is faithful to rise up, raise up godly co-workers. You see this. We, we don't know how Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. But maybe there was, I don't know, a Corinth, Corinth uh, you know, kind of a help wanted kind of thing. Who knows how it was done. But somehow God in his Sovereign care. God 
even used the anti-Semitic edict that took place in Rome to send Aquila and Priscilla from there to Corinth. And God used that. And God even used Paul's lack of funds to put him into the job market, didn't he? And so God providentially brought these three together. They even later went with Paul to Ephesus where they hosted a church in their own home. And eventually they returned to Rome where they hosted a church in Rome. Paul says that they risked their lives for his sake and that they were appreciated by all the Gentile churches. That's Romans 16, 3 through 5. Read it. The, the entire Gentile church loved them. And in one of Paul's last verses in, in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is kind of Paul's final last will and testament. Paul wrote before he was executed, he said, send greetings to this couple because they had become lifelong friends. So God providentially cares God providentially is always faithful towards his servants. First by providing co-workers. He also provided at the right time Silas and Timothy rejoining him. Just at the right time. Just at the right time. And they brought, what did they bring? Not more burdens, but they brought encouraging words that the church in Macedonia is faithful and strong. And these were all faithful co-workers for the cause of Christ. Here's the deal, Missio Dei Church. When we are saved, when you are saved, the Holy Spirit incorporates us into the body of Christ. We become members of one another. Under Jesus Christ, our living head, and God did not design us to go at it alone. Period. He did not design us to go at it alone. We desperately need each other. Desperately. Men and women need each other, not just in the context of marriage, but you need the other person sitting across the other aisle. We need each other. Even though sometimes we needle at each other and we bother each other, we get underneath each other's skin, we need each other. All ministry needs to be done as team ministry where we complement one another as we pray for one another, as we burden our burden with one another's burdens. We need each other. And it's a, for me, it is one of the most encouraging things is when the body, when you work together apart from me, not just Paul mandating we should do this, we should do that. But when we work together, when we labor together for his cause. Here's the second encouraging thing that we can see that God is faithful to provide funds for work. You know, just a month ago or so, we, we decided that we've got to cut our budget. We've got to cut it. We've got to pay the bills, Right? The beautiful thing is that God always has a way of providing the funds for his work. Paul didn't advertise his, his personal support. He didn't send out letters of support. Even though those things are not wrong, he would make known others' needs. 
But when he ran out of personal funds, he would just start making tents. He would just make tents until the Lord provided the support. And while I, I don't think that it's wrong for Christian workers to make their own needs known, all of us must live by faith in this area of finances. And I don't mean all of those of us in full-time ministry, but rather all of us. We all need to live by faith in the area of finances. And I believe that every Christian should be able to be giving enough to the Lord's work that you are forced to trust God to provide some things that you otherwise would probably go out and just buy. God, this, this kind of giving is kind of dangerous on the fringe kind of giving, but you know what? I know, God, that you are always, always faithful to provide. That's kind of dangerous living, but it's rooted in not dangerous, haphazard, crazy Christian philosophy. It is rooted in the gospel that God is faithful. He will always provide. And how does he provide? It's through his people. It's through you. And it's a great joy when you live that way and when God provides what you've been praying for. <laughs> I'm sure Paul would have just been a stack. He's like, you kidding me? Silas, Timothy, you are... I've been working my tail off and I've been giving faithfully to the gospel and then all of a sudden you show up with this amazing gift from Philippi? Amazing. I've been praying for that. God shows up at the right time in providing his people with what he and she needs, with what the church needs. We also see that God is faithful in bringing converts even in the face of opposition. Even in the face of opposition, even though Paul was faced with strong opposition, God graciously brought several to salvation, including a man living next door to the synagogue and the synagogue leader and his family. There were also many Gentiles, many Gentiles in this city of Corinth. Remember, let's describe the city of Corinth. High amount of sexual immorality going on. It was a rough kind of place. And so, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul lists the kind of people who were saved. Listen to this. He lists former, those who were formerly uh, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And those are all the type of people that made up the church in Corinth. You want to talk about a messy church? What a way to start off. Man, we have those who are sexually immoral, and that's kind of a whole swath of kind of description right there. Everything from pornographers. Uh, uh, we got a whole list of kind of things fit into that kind of thing, all right? We're not going to go into the list. And then on top of that, those who are idolaters, worshiping other gods. And they were on top of that, adulterers. So, you know, people in the church who are, man... 
I used to sleep around with your wife. Or you used to sleep around with my husband. And those are people in the church brought together as the bride of Christ. On top of that, there were those who were practicing homosexuality. Remember, there were temple prostitutes, a thousand in the temple of Aphrodite. Welcome. Our doors are open. One of the things that I would love for Missio Day to do is redefine what it means to be open and affirming. Welcoming and affirming. Our doors need to be wide open to whomever comes to us. Whoever is in your neighborhood. You should be open and welcoming and say, come, be a part of our family. But we also need to be affirming. Affirming of the right thing. Affirming of the gospel. The power of the gospel. That transforms people. Because that's what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 6 and what's happening in Acts chapter 18. People were coming to Christ. They were transformed. Their lives, they're no longer these people, but they are now these people. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That is the kind of people that were in this first church where sin abounded, God's grace super abounded. You think your sin is bad? Uh, you need to see the power and the immensity of God's grace. I hope that you pray often for God to use our church to use and to use you to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ from every walk of life. From every walk of life. If we're not reaching out to the lost, we are forgetting our mission and probably even far more tragic than forgetting our mission is that we are forgetting the grace of God that has poured, been poured out to us in the first place. If like Paul at any time in your life, you're struggling with discouragement, nothing will encourage you more than to see a person being saved by grace through faith in Christ. There's nothing more powerful than that. And if God can mightily save the corrupt, immoral Corinthians, he can save anyone. Anyone. We also need to see that God is faithful to confirm his presence, his protection, and his purpose. You see this in 9 through 11. And just when Paul needed it, the Lord appeared to him in a, in a vision, an encouragement. He said, listen, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. I'm with you. And besides that, I have many in this city who are mine. This is one of the six visions that Paul receives in the book of Acts. And all are critical uh, junctures in his ministry. And this was not just a strong impression. Rather, Paul actually saw Christ and heard him audibly. Does God still do that today? I am not going to say no. I believe that God still works in powerful ways always in line with his inspired word, never changing any words. But God does that. 
And in those moments, what did he do for Paul? He confirmed three things. He confirmed his presence. He said, listen, I am with you. It, it reflects what we heard in, in Matthew 28. When, when Jesus promised you, I will be, be with you even until the end of the age. I will always be with you. The Lord's promise applied to Israel is also applying to us in Isaiah 43 where he says this. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Does that say any encouragement there? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is who I am. I am with you. Knowing that the Lord your God is with you wherever you are going should give you unspeakable comfort. The prayer request that we just prayed Tuesday. All those things. We should have great comfort because you know what? As we go through the, the fire, as we go through the river, the water's not going to overwhelm us and cover us. He, why? Because he's our God. And he promises us what? That he will be with us. Second, he, he confirmed his protection. No man will attack you in, in order to harm you. Listen, I'm with you. And if I am with you, no one's going to harm you. And this was not just a general, uh, this isn't a, just a general promise that applies to every situation because we've already talked about that we will all go through trials. We will, until the day that we die and see Jesus face to face, we will face trials. It's given. But this was applied specifically to this time in Corinth. And at other times, Paul did suffer physical attacks. But now God is promising his protection, his care. The application for us is not that God's servants are guaranteed physical safety. That's, that's what we got to understand. It's not that we're all promised, don't worry, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to be pain, painless. Because the reality is there are tons of martyrs even today in our time, who are being martyred because of their witness to Christ. But we can know that no one will touch us unless it is God's purpose. God's purpose. And as long as he has a mission for us to accomplish, he will keep his protective hand on us. Nothing happens to you. Nothing. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every pain that's in your heart. Nothing will happen to you that is not according to his purpose and according to his mission. But he also confirmed, we see him confirming his purpose, for I have many in the city. God is referring to his elect, his chosen before the foundation of the world in Jesus Christ. God knew each one of those people in that city. I, I, I have many there. I know them by name. I've I'm calling them out. 
God knew each one, but Paul didn't know who they were until they put their trust in Christ. He had to preach the gospel to them so that they would believe. Some argue that the doctrine of, of election discourages evangelism. Because if God chose them, then it's a done deal, right? So we don't have to do anything. That's kind of this hyper-Calvinistic kind of thing. Is You know, they're predetermined. We don't really have to do evangelism. God, God if he's sovereign and he's all-powerful, he'll bring them somehow. But if our responsibility is to do what? To share the gospel. If God has ordained not only their salvation, he has also ordained the means of their salvation, and that is the preaching of the gospel. The faithful preaching of the gospel. The faithful sharing of the gospel. Your day-to-day -day experiences. The doctrine of election ought to motivate us to evangelism. If salvation is up to man's so-called free will, no one will be saved. No one will be saved when you witness to them because no one can understand the gospel in his or her fallen condition apart from God's sovereign grace. You need scripture for that? Romans 3, 10 through 13, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. We need God's sovereign grace to transform our hearts. And apart from God's sovereign work, there is no hope. If given a free choice, every, every, every fallen sinner will choose sin. If God purposed to save a sinner and Jesus shed his blood to redeem that sinner and the Holy Spirit imparts eternal life and saving faith to him or her when they hear the gospel, then there is hope when we share the gospel. There's hope. That's why later Paul wrote in, in 2 Timothy uh, 2, Therefore I endure everything, everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I'll do whatever it takes for the sake of those who do not yet know Jesus Christ and his perfect work. I will do whatever it takes so that they may obtain salvation. Therefore, God is faithful to raise up godly co-workers, to provide funds, to bring converts, even in the face of opposition, and to confirm his presence, his protection, and his purpose. And God is faithful in spite of apathetic government and hostile enemies. Where, where is the church growing the fastest? It's not in North America, even though we think that we're being persecuted and it's hostile here. It is growing in the persecuted world. That is where the church is growing exponentially. When the church is meeting, where? Underground is where the church is just growing. God didn't promise him protection from opposition, but from physical harm. And even there was a new governor, council, Gallio, who took office and the Jews sought to get rid of Paul by accusing him again of teaching the people in a wrong way. And they, they probably meant that the Roman law, but Paul saw it as an internal squabble that was going on and he refused to hear their case. God put Gallio there. God put Gallio there. 
Luke relates the story to show how important a Roman, this Roman official is and how he refused to rule against Christianity. Gallio was the, uh, a brother of a philosopher known as Seneca who tutored Nero. If you know anything about Nero, whack job. So he is, Gallio is the brother to Seneca who tutored Nero. Okay, draw a line there. God put Gallio in a place. And Gallio did not rule against Christianity. The thing about Nero is he eventually turned against both men in general and Christianity. But for about 10 years, Gallio's ruling provided a guaranteed legal protection for the church. And so God's faithful providence overruled apathy of this proconsul and the aggression of the Jews, the Jews. And the bottom line is God's faithfulness for us. And it is that God's servants, this is the last point, God's servants should be faithful in serving him in spite of difficulties. It brings us full circle. God's, we, we need to be faithful in serving him despite the difficulties that we go through. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. Those are all imperatives, commands that Jesus is saying, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. So he's, what did Paul do? He stayed there for a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. God would not have Paul have told Paul not to be afraid unless Paul was afraid, right? Don't be afraid. I am afraid. Well, don't be afraid. My presence is promised. My purpose is sure. Nothing's going to thwart that. Paul needed to be encouraged. And if the bold apostle would need to preach to hostile audiences and rebuke even Peter for his hypocrisy for being afraid, then any of us can be afraid. John Calvin points out a lack of fear is a chief quality needed by a preacher of the gospel. A lack of fear. One of the biggest temptations preachers, church leaders face is to become people pleasers rather than God pleasers. It's a danger. It's a danger for me. I want you to be happy. I want you to, be, I want you to come back next week. I want this to be sweet like honey. There's that danger. Well, we should always be kind and never needlessly stirring up controversy just for controversy's sake. Let's face it. There are some difficult truths in God's word. Difficult. Line in the sand truths. And if we waffle on them, we will not be faithful to the Lord. The, God, the gospel is not God loves you and wants you to have a happy life. 
That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, you're saved so you can be chipper and smiley and comfortable and safe and secure and live in your nice little suburbanite home where you never have to step out of your fenced-in backyard. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you are a lost sinner, alienated from a holy God because of your sin. The only remedy for your sin is the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, and you must repent and trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved from God's judgment. The good news is that God provided a way. If we do not confront sinners with their sin, we will not be preaching the gospel. This is day, church. I pray that we cling unto God's promises to his faithfulness that we cling to him in those times of trial when we are, we are lonely, we are pained, we are questioning, we're tired, we're distressed, we're wearied, we're deeply hurt, confused, feel alienated, I pray that we become a community of people that cling to the promises that he is faithful. For I am with you. I am with you. When you go through the river, when you go through the waters, when you go through the fires, you're mine. I am with you. We do that for, because God's character is true. We also do that because we believe in the gospel. We've experienced the gospel, his transforming work in his life. We know he is trustworthy and we can trust in his faithfulness. But as we trust more in his faithfulness and cling to what the truthfulness of his character and the truthfulness of his work, as we do that more increasingly day by day, the world is going to be watching. And as they struggle with, let me see if I can find it again real quick, like 1 Corinthians 6, all the, the list, uh, I can't find, all those sins that people are struggling with in our world and we present them with the gospel and we point them to a faithful God that you're going to go through fires, you're going to go through waters, you're going to go through this overwhelming sense of, of flooding in your life. The reality is that he is faithful and he will sustain you through all these things. The thing you need to do today, brothers and sisters, is repent. Confess your sin and trust in his faithfulness to save you. That is the only thing, the only hope that you have. It is compelling. And that's who God's calling us to be. Amen.